Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 53. I'm still your host, Dan Holzman. I have not been replaced on my own show yet, but I do have uh, new guests every episode, and the guests for this episode are a great showbiz couple, Casey Martin and Rob Williams, better known in the showbiz circles I hang out as the Kamikaze Fireflies. Uh, Before we talk to the Kamikaze Fireflies, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the fantastic, wonderful organization called the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. They can be found at juggle.org. All sorts of resources can be found at juggle.org, including all of the Drop Everything podcasts. So check them out and see what this fine organization can offer you today. Also sponsored by Zing Toys and the Zing Dama. Plus, of course, ringdama.com. It started as the Ring Dama, which can be bought at ringdama.com for your holiday needs. But now it's morphed into the Zing Dama, brought to you by Zing Toys and available at zingtoys.com, Amazon, or at Walmart. This is the hottest new skill toy, sweeping the markets and hopefully making me a little money at the same time. All right, enough preamble, enough brouhaha. Let's get to the Kamikaze Fireflies. Rob and Casey, the Kamikaze Fireflies. Hi, guys. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good. And where are you guys living now? You're, you're back east, correct? Well, we split our time kind of uh, in between Los Angeles and Cincinnati. Ah, you're bi-coastal. Is Cincinnati a coast? I don't know. If, I don't know if that counts or not. So, and you, so you, why do you split your time? Is that because of your traveling so much? Yeah, it, we find that, like, especially for driving tours, it's so much better for us to have, like, at least a temporary base here somewhere in the the middle of the country because when you tour out of Los Angeles the Mojave Desert is between you and everything else in the world so it's really inconvenient so this is a great spot because we do a renaissance festival here so it's a great spot for us to be able to base out of for other tours yeah and when you do a renaissance festival it's basically like a two-month contract so we're here two months out of the year anyway so we thought we'd invest in some properties here in Cincinnati and when you do the fairs it's just weekend work do you then try to tour during the week and try to pick up some shows midweek? When you can, yeah. Sometimes we'll do theaters midweek or um, like corporate events, colleges, stuff like that. We've done almost every university in in Ohio at this point. And now the tours, you mostly go on are college tours then? So that's a different time than when you're at the fair. Yeah, but also we do performing arts centers. That's a a fair bit of work. And, you know, private corporate events as well. Yeah, we just did a, a performing arts center up in michigan which is uh for cincinnati driving from cincinnati to michigan uh, in fremont was only like a six hour drive so it was great for touring and when you do you bring a lot of props i know you have a big german wheel do you guys have a van or do you tow something what's the logistics of your show how much uh, equipment do you, do you guys haul yeah we we try to break the show down into either it's the flying version of the show or the driving version of the show and the, uh, the driving version has things like stacking chairs, German wheel, and the flying version has just... A lot more talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always say that jokes uh, pack very light. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and the German wheel packs very heavy. Yeah. It's terrible to tour with. It's like a terrible six-minute routine that we haul 100 pounds around with us. <laughs> well, I just checked your guys' website, and I saw your schedule for 2017. So before we go into what you guys are currently doing and how... You're pretty much booked all year round between the colleges and the cruises and the Ren Fairs. Yeah. Yep. Let's let's get in our Wayback Machine at the Drop Everything podcast and start at the very beginning. 
And since there's two of you, I'm going to go with the elder of the two first. That's, of course, Rob. And let's try to talk about your beginnings, Rob, and when you discovered juggling in your life. It was at a Renaissance festival for me. I went out, I grew up in Dallas and, uh, you know, didn't even think to go out to the Ren Fair, but we were hanging out at comic book stores and people just said, you guys should go out to this thing, this Renaissance Fair. It was very new there. It was only a couple of years old, uh, Scarborough Fair. And so my pals and I went out there being little geeky guys that we were, loved it. And I saw this guy, Nick Newland, who did a show called Niccolo the Gypsy Juggler and I loved it. I was really entranced by it, watched the whole show, uh, really enjoyed it, and went home that very night and sat down with three golf balls and just sort of threw them in the air until I finally figured it out. It just kept going and going until I was like, okay, it's got to work like this, and I was able to crack it. So you were a teenager. Yeah, I was 15 at that time, and I became that kind of guy who, it was the one thing I could do that none of my friends could do, and I got really obsessed with it. My mother made me some little bean bags out of socks and pinto beans and something like that and and i just carried them everywhere i would do tricks everywhere all the time for anybody that would just tolerate me to juggle in front of them and how'd you learn uh, like more advanced techniques because at that time we're talking what about the early 80s or something maybe or yeah, this would have been 82 so so i know what i had like one video we all watched that a friend had john luker mm-hmm. how'd you see uh, more advanced juggling techniques at that time it took me a little while. I started to go out to the Renaissance Fair to work as like one of their unpaid actors. And that got me tighter in with some of the other guys. That's how I met Kevin and John, my partners in The Flaming Idiot. But then it was the Dallas Juggle-In. They'd have their Wednesday night juggling meeting. And it was so instrumental. Logan Daffron ran it, runs it still, I think. And it was so instrumental. It was just a Wednesday night, 7 to 10. And it was so helpful. You know, juggling, what I love is it's one of those things that you can just hang out in a room full of jugglers and it's almost like you feel your juggling getting better just by osmosis. You're just near it. You see it. Your brain starts to open up. You're like, oh, oh, I see. You can, oh, I, I got it. Then Kevin and John and I, we, when we started The Idiots, we, our juggling skills were as low as like, I could juggle three clubs. Kevin could do three balls. It was really rudimentary. So when we taught ourselves how to pass, we had to figure out which hand throws, which hand catches. How do you do that? I mean, a lot of that was just trial and error, and it's got to work like this. And then we started going to the juggling, and it really helped us a lot. Now, what about you, Casey, before we go on to the Flaming Idiots? Because you guys had a, a very long career, about 20 years together. So I yeah. want to get more into depth into your work with them. Let's go to sure. you, Casey. Well, how old were you when you first uh, discovered juggling? When I first discovered juggling, I think I was 18 years old. I had very much like Rob. I had joined my local Renaissance Festival in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster at the uh, Pennsylvania Renaissance Festival. I just started juggling. I, they put me in the street circus, uh, like on their cast street circus, because I was just walking on stilts. I had taught myself to walk on stilts. So I was around people who were jugglers. Uh, like with some of my friends, I started a like an acrobatic show, and we took it on the road. I learned all sorts of acrobatics and juggling there. We did a lot of different Renaissance festivals. We toured all over. It's the one in Phoenix, Atlanta, Colorado, and... Uh, While I was doing that, I was also attending Westchester University in Pennsylvania and flying back and forth every weekend. Like I would do a show somewhere across the country in Colorado and then fly back late on Sunday night, attend classes all week, and then fly back out on Friday night to go back to a Renaissance festival. So it was a very hectic time in my life. It was was very, very busy. If I'm correct, that act was called Is that, was that the name? Yes. Yes, that's the one. So what was the plan? Of course, so going to college, did you have some other plan besides... Being in well, entertainment? 
funny you should ask because every every single person in my family is a teacher. I was kind of always expected for me to become a teacher, and I, I literally ran away and joined the circus. I'm one of those people. So I think it, I had felt pressure to get a, a degree and uh, get a teaching degree. But then I ultimately decided after doing my student teaching that I love performing and was just making enough money, and I, I just love doing it. I love being on stage, and I found. The interesting difference between being on stage and conducting a class with a bunch of children is that when you're on stage, you are wanting to like get noise and, and energy out from the people. And when you're teaching, you're oftentimes trying to quiet them down. And I found that distinction, like doing student teaching on the weekdays and then going and performing on the weekends. So I also see on the website that you graduated a sumo cum laude. And yes. to be honest... I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Did I pronounce that correctly? I think it's summa cum laude. Uh, okay, summa cum laude. There's no laude. It's not like latte, like you got a, a, think, a big coffee yeah, drink. No latte involved. And you know what? I, funny enough, I didn't know what it was until it was bestowed upon me. I always thought ma- magna cum laude was like the ultimate the best degree of certification that you could get uh, at a university. But uh, summa cum laude is actually the highest level of distinction that you can get at a university. I, I got a 4.0. Um, I graduated in the top 1% of my class. And uh, it was was a great honor. It's like one of my life's greatest achievements, honestly. And what do you attribute that work ethic? Because you're talking about going to classes all week, performing all weekend. I know you personally, I know you're blessed with endless energy. (laughs) How how do you bear down and do something like that? You graduate with a 4.0. I came from a family of teachers, which uh, they put high value on education. So I'm very focused on education. But also, I did so much time flying in an airplane that I had kind of endless studying time and homework time that I could do on the airplanes. And I just buckled down and read all my textbooks and filled out all my papers and studied on airplanes. Now, is that where the two of you met? Did you meet uh, working Renaissance fairs? We did, yeah. I was doing the show with Barely Balanced in um, Fort Lauderdale. And Rob was doing his one-man show at the time. And I was, I believe at the time, I was breathing fire and Rob was dressed as a nun crowd surfing the audience. And uh, when I saw him doing that, I knew that was the man for me. Sure, the crowd surfing nun. That's always a, a classic pickup <laughs> kind of maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, you were solo. So let's, give a, let's do a little bit of the arc of the Flaming Idiots then, because sure. like I said, you guys ended up pretty far along. I remember from, there were some TV shows. I remember uh-huh. Comic Strip Live in particular. Yeah, we did. That was, uh, you know, it was great. I know you and Barry did a lot of this, too. And it was catching that kind of the end wave of the comedy club boom of the 80s. It kind of stretched into the early 90s. And so we there were a bunch of like stand up shows on mainstream television on one of the major networks. And so, yeah, Comic Strip Live, Sunday Comics. We did America's Funniest People. Yeah, just a few different shows like that really, really helped us along. And now your act was sort of geared around. There were a couple sort of strong points. First of all, you sort of have more of a theatrical quality than some of the other team juggling acts. Did you guys have a, a theater background? Not really. I mean, I, John and I had both uh, done a bit of theater. Kevin, uh, less so, but still a little bit dabbled in it. For years, we did it just like the Raspini brothers. We were jugglers on Renaissance festivals circuit, and that was basically it. And we slowly added in some other skills like whip cracking a straight jacket escapes. But then we started to go to Canada every summer and do fringe theater festivals. And we would do both indoor and outdoor. And I really feel like that kind of helped start to open our eyes up to the, the idea that you could do uh, a variety skill kind of meshed with a bit of like sketch comedy. So you could do a character with a costume 
and plug in a bunch of variety skills and it would have sort of a unique take on the whole biz. So that's kind of the direction we went. Now you guys had that character name, so I think maybe that's one distinction too. Anytime an act like the Karamazov brothers, where they give themselves an alter identity, all of a sudden becomes more theatrical. Like you didn't use your, your real names. You were, you were like, uh, remind me of the names you guys use. I'm sure I'd butcher it. Yeah, it was Gyro, Pyro, and Walter. And now Walter, of course, for the people who've seen the videos of the Flaming Idiots, he was the one with the very large, I guess you wouldn't call it an afro. <laughs> what, what would you call that that hairstyle that he had? What do you had? call that? Well, I don't know what you call it, but kind of, I, I would think of it as like rock star hair. Like he had a head of hair that was, people would often think he was, oh, what was that? Uh, he was kind of like Kenny G hair, right? Yeah. There's some other rocker guy. Or Kevin like, Dubrow what? from Quiet Riot. He kind of had that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the guy from Rush, look. somebody. Getty yeah, Kenny Lee, the guy from Rush. Yeah, there you. Yeah. yeah. He would get that a lot. His hair became one of his defining characteristics, and he, he it was both a blessing and a curse. It definitely identified him as a the odd man in the show, the one, two, three, the one that was, you know, two similar, one different. Yeah, I think part of the reason we went with the stage names was, you know, we were in Renaissance festivals. It was kind of what everybody did out at those places. And I think we were like, we saw acts like the Karamazov brothers. And we were like, oh, okay, I think that's how you have to do it. Because that was one of the first juggling shows I ever saw. They would come through Dallas on a regular basis. And so it helped form my idea of like, you know, really one of the things that did help us kind of break out of like, okay, well, that here's another way of doing it was seen, not to keep going back to it, but seeing the Raspinis, you guys were down at TRF. And we saw you very early on. And we are like, oh, okay, so this is radically different than the Karamazovs, a completely different take on <laughs> Yeah, we were more like, what, like two normal, kind of normal guys, but like, we certainly, I mean, I certainly was odd in my own way, but we were not, we were not like theatrical Karamazov types no, by any means. No, no, not at all. And you guys, it really was, I, for us, I think it was a bit of a combination of the two because it was, we liked the theatrical, but we always wanted to just be three funny guys who are doing funny things together. Like that was the, the pride, and that's certainly what the Espinis are, you know, you guys, Two funny guys doing skills together. That's and what more do you really need? It's a it's a good combo. Well, it was at one time, like you were saying, there was certainly <laughs> a wave. Yeah, and we caught that wave, especially if we're getting on TV and sort of for the idea of what they would call new vaudeville at that time. Yeah. Uh huh. And now I don't know if really they have anything that's sort of taken its place. Maybe some of the stuff with the WJF is that kind of angle might take its place. You know, kind of the, the gimmicky sports juggling type of stuff. Yeah, uh, I also feel like, I felt like with the Flaming Idiots, I felt like it was both a blessing and a curse that we were kind of, we kind of came in on the, at the tail end of that whole new vaudeville thing. And so the doors had been open. So people accepted it as a, a valid form of entertainment for a night of theater or whatever. However, it also lost a little bit of its uniqueness. You know, when you had the Karamazov doing it, people were... I think rightfully like, oh my God, look, which was all uh, sort of an outgrowth, I guess, of the street scene sort of in San Francisco, sort of in your neck of the woods. But it was so unique. People like Avner, Bill Irwin, the Karamazovs, Penn and Teller, these things were all kind of radical, revolutionary things. And by the time we made the scene, again, they'd open the doors, but then it also became a bit passe. It was like, okay, well, we've seen that before. It wasn't so radically new to everybody. I think when Saturday Night Live stopped using variety, that was a pretty yeah. big blow. Because for people who don't realize, but at a certain time, they had acts. Yeah, they Michael had, Davis. Michael right? Davis did it a couple of times, at least maybe yeah. two or three times. I know uh, Penn and Teller did it. 
Yeah. And you know, we certainly were hoping to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of break would certainly keep variety in the mainstream. Well, Carson too. We came in just behind. Like by the time we started to kind of hit it, it was just as Carson was leaving, and just we just missed that window of opportunity. And, I'm totally envious of guys like you, the passing zone, these guys who were able to make it on Carson while it was still still an avenue. Well, I guess now I think the avenues are more like the YouTube and certainly mm-hmm. I always thought that commercials were a great avenue. That's something that me and Barry, yeah. even though we were in L.A., uh, we had a couple that we got that we couldn't shoot. It never quite turned out that way. But Casey, that seems to be something that you really excel at. Yeah, How do you... Know- is that something you go through a commercial agent? What's the process in booking commercials? Yeah, when we moved out to Los Angeles, I uh, I tried really hard, and it was very difficult to get an agent. But I finally I did get a commercial agent that sends me out on auditions for all sorts of commercials. And there's a real need for it. Commercials really they love flashy, circusy type things. Oftentimes. They'll even just put it in the background, but there's a definite need for circus type people for commercials in LA. And oftentimes, you know, it's the same group of people. So I'd go out on an audition and I would see people like Jack Calvin out there. All of our names were on the audition list. And unfortunately, most of the time they're looking for a man to do circus stuff, but occasionally they, they want a woman. And lucky for me, I'm one of the very few circus performers in LA that's a woman who has a commercial agent. So I oftentimes will, will get the, the juggling cell phone, uh, the mom juggling a cell phone gig or uh, one of my favorite ones was the California tourism one which has me fire breathing with William Shatner in it that one was great because it's California tourism it's shown all over the world because they're trying to get people to come to California I, I didn't see it ever not once in the United States but when we were in Australia of all places I actually got to see myself on a commercial for California tourism and that was kind of one of the coolest moments from my commercial career now I am very anti-fire breathing Right. So I, I think it's something that, well, when done incorrectly or when right. done to excess. Because... I, I can also say that I am anti-fire breathing at this point, but uh, the money for commercials is is, is great. Like uh, you make thousands and thousands of dollars. I think I've made $80,000 off just that one commercial. No, I mean, when used judiciously, the yes, power so... of the, the fire blow can be right. immense. But you see some people who do it like on a daily basis or... My favorite story is when we were at a, uh, just a juggling festival and they had a fire jam outside. Mm-hmm. And this guy who I never met or didn't really just saw him from a, a ways off. First of all, he had a little toddler quite close to him, too close <laughs> to the fire breather to begin with. And he was just shooting out fireball after fireball as if there was no cost to his health. I mean, he must have set off 20 or 30. And I'm just going, buddy. No, it's I like you're drinking gasoline, right? Yeah, I can't recommend that. I I used to do it more in um, my earlier years. I would do it like once a show, and I found that eventually it started to make me sick. It gave me like um, headaches, and I, I yeah, I definitely felt ill afterwards. And so I, I at some point in my early twenties just decided to stop that and retire it, unless a Hollywood commercial comes along, and then sure. I will of course truck out the fire breathing. Now, what's the process of learning that? I'm sure you had somebody. Uh, at- teach you dead simple it's one of the easiest things you can learn how to do i mean if you can like spit water out of your mouth and sort of mystify it you're basically fire breathing it, it is still very dangerous and as i was being taught by the man uh, named damian blade a performer at the pennsylvania renaissance festival he actually did catch his hair on fire as he was showing me how to breathe fire so it was a little bit of a startling entryway into it but uh it, yeah it's very easy and i think anyone can do it but that also makes it very dangerous because anyone could do it 
Well, the safer routine and one that you're also known for as the kamikaze fireflies is one uh, Rob does where you make a sandwich with your feet. Now, right. you, you started doing that during the, the Flaming Idiots uh, time, correct? Correct. How, how did that come about? <laughs> well, at one of the festivals that we loved, the one that got me started, uh, Scarborough Fair, we would do these shows at the end of the day that were just sort of shows that allowed us to sort of blow off a little steam. You know, when you do your show four or five times in one day, full-length shows, like 45-minute long shows, you get a little numb to your own show, and you, you long for the ability to just go out and do something funny that's completely off script, has nothing to do with your show. So we would do shows at the end of the day that we would just put together, and they would just be sort of always unplanned, just make stuff up. We did a mock talk show. We did a variety show. We did all sorts of things, but one of them was, it was a little bit like Jackass. It was like doing dumb stunts and no stunt would go, you know, we would try anything. Just absolutely whatever your idea was, nothing was ever not greenlit. Everything went. So I had this idea to do, I just randomly thought that would be funny, make a sandwich with my feet. So I thought of it on Wednesday, got all the ingredients together, practiced it a couple of times, performed it that Saturday. And we were doing it as an improv show, so we tried to not repeat ourselves, but it was such a hit. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do it next week. And it really, like, kind of started to take off a little bit. Like, everybody was talking about it. But when you spend your life working out routines that take, that are skill-based, that you have to put in the time and the discipline to learn them, juggling, even things like whip cracking, you get to the point where you think, that's what I do. I learn difficult, unique skills that other people don't take the time to learn how to do. And that's what gives me, uh, you know, a reason to charge for what I do. But the sandwich is just something ridiculous. Like anybody could do it, but it's all in the routine of it. And it slowly made its way into the show and became one of those routines that even though we would do, uh, you know, a 90, 100 minute long show in theaters with an intermission, we would tell people about the entire show and they'd want to like on the radio or on TV and they'd want us to do the foot sandwich. They just loved it. It was so unusual. What well, kind of shows you that we're not really selling technique. Like some mm -hmm. acts like a, an Anthony Gatto type, they're basically right. selling the idea of watch me do something amazing. Watch me right. do something out of this world physically, mm -hmm. where at a certain point we start to realize, oh, it's about being clever. Yeah. It's about using this, the variety skills in some way that has the maximum entertainment effect. Right. And I think the thing about that routine, and it kind of reminds me of the routine Michael Davis does with the uh, chicken breast ball of butter and loaf of bread where it's all about kind of you know he gets an audience volunteer up it's sort of a challenge uh -huh. and, and they both juggle the objects together like they both have a set and the idea is it's sort of a do as i do and at the very end michael davis throws up the big ball of butter and catches it right on top of his head uh -huh. expecting the volunteer to do the same thing right which at that moment the way they built it up of course the volunteer does uh -huh. been building up to that entire moment basically that's so great. this idea of you're making a sandwich with your feet, but what makes the routine good is how you've milked out uh, the comedy, how you've sort of look, looked at it like, okay, where are the comic beats in this structure of this routine? Right. Because if people watch that routine, and I recommend they go on YouTube and watch it, it's very well paced. And you've really thought out how much, how much interest is there in this and how can I get the most out of it? Did you, ever, did you work with directors on it? Was that something that just kind of developed over time? How does a routine like that develop? It developed over time. I went through a process of both adding things in and then subtracting things back out where you go, 
uh, it was funny. I did it uh, for a Guinness World Record, and they added it early on. It was very early in the time that I was doing it, and they their recommendation was the pickle jar. And of course, once I started shoving my foot in a full size pickle jar, I realized, oh, how did I ever do this routine? That's, that's like the highlight it's of the, the routine. Highlight. Yeah, it's, it's I like when part. you wash your feet too, when you when you uh, sanitize your feet. <laughs> yeah, but then I had other little things like I used to try to throw the bologna ring into a trash can and I used to or the napkin as well that I dry my feet with and I, I used to add olives on toothpicks and I just bit by bit I put, would put it in a uh, like a lunch bag and I just started to go well add things in like the pickles but take things out that didn't really have a whole lot of payoff like, like didn't you have the, tomatoes or something yeah I had tomatoes I used to do olives just things that were like okay well that's just an extra ingredient without a lot of jokes or anything I think that that is the surprising part for people is that it's not, it sounds like if I just said that I make a sandwich with my feet, you might think it's like a, a routine that is only meant to be kind of gross. It's meant to be sort of disgusting somehow. Yeah. And Like jackassy, like you said, yeah. Yeah, but it's totally not the point. It should be amusing to you. And if anything, maybe you'll be a little bit impressed by, you know, the, how many things you can do with your toes. At some of these Renaissance festivals, too, uh, some of these festivals that we do that Rob's been doing the foot sandwich for a number of years, women actually, like, fight to get to be the volunteers. At some point, we'll, he'll say he's going to do the foot sandwich, and, like, 20 hands will go up, and they're, just, like, shaking their hands so hard like they want to do it. Like, they wear it as a badge of honor to eat that foot sandwich. But then, weirdly, it's when I do it in, like, a corporate event, I find there are times when I just can't get someone to raise their hand because I feel like at a... In a corporation, when it's all your co-workers, nobody wants to be that weirdo who's going to hear about this on Monday, about how unusual you are. Like, they, there's just a bit of social pressure to not be that wacky. Well, like in the build-up, how you mentioned all the celebrities have eaten the sandwich, mm-hmm. and also the fact that, like I say, that if you didn't do the hygienic part of it, if you like didn't clean your feet, then there'd be that kind of skis factor. But once people right. say, like, oh, what's the difference now that he's washed his feet? Right. I'd rather have some guy wash his feet than not wash his hands and make a sandwich. Exactly. I, that, I've often said that to people. It's like, if you think about what goes on back in the average kitchen at the average restaurant, if you think they're back there with the pristine little hands of a surgeon, you are mistaken, my friend. <laughs> so that's one of those routines you took on from the Flaming Idiots into your solo career. If we look yep. at the Flaming Idiots, so you guys had a, a pretty long career, 20 years or so. Yep. And we don't have to get really into the, the reasons behind it, but at a certain point, you guys broke up. You guys ran out of steam or you moved on in a new direction. Any ideas or any kind of things you can say like why it didn't go on any further? Well, it was a choice. It wasn't It wasn't so much that we ran out of steam as it, much as it was like we had done it for some 20 years. I did it from like 17 to 37. And it just felt like if I'm going to do anything else with my life, if I'm going to just try new things and seek new horizons, then I've just got to stop this. I I can't dabble in this. And it also felt nice to kind of go out while it still felt exciting and relevant and interesting to us. And we were still the best of friends, like better to go out. It, It reminded me of like the way like Seinfeld said that he wanted to end Seinfeld. He didn't want to end because ratings were slipping. He wanted to end while things were going great. And so, you know, we made a big reunion or a big, um, this was our last year, and uh, lots of great things happened. We had another run at the New Victory Theater in New York City. We we were performing at Zach Scott Theater in Austin, Texas, and we were doing like two-month-long runs there because it was a big goodbye, farewell tour. All these great things happened. The audiences were just pouring out. We couldn't add enough shows. We couldn't keep up with it physically. The 
the mayor of Austin came down on stage and read a mayoral proclamation declaring, I think it was like February 3rd, Flaming Idiot Day in Austin, Texas. And just really fun, cool things like that happened. So it felt like, good, go out with a bang like that rather than just kind of fade away. It's nice too. It's nice that you guys said you ended up as friends because I think like for me and Barry, the idea that you have this long history together, you don't want to mess it up at the end. You don't want yeah. it to be like, oh, and now we hate each other, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's I, good to go out friends. Absolutely. Now let's, let's pick up now the story of, of course, the Kamikaze Fireflies. So now you're working together at a Renaissance Fair. You, you blossom, uh, romance blossoms, and you guys become a couple, and you decide to put an act together. Let's, let's first of all talk about the name, because the name is quite unusual. What are the pros and cons of being the kamikaze fireflies? <laughs> well, you know, we don't have a great story about what it was. We kind of just talked over like different names and we just like the way that kamikaze firefly sounds like it doesn't lock us in like the flaming idiots with fire. Like if you hear the flaming idiots, you have to do fire. But the kamikaze fireflies, you really don't know what that is. In retrospect, I think it's a, it's a hard name to spell and it's a hard name to pronounce. So I don't know if... If going back again, I would have chosen Kamikaze Fireflies, but it, that's what it is, and so that's what we'll run with. <laughs> I like it, too, because if you look at, like, uh, busker festivals, and I've done a few with you guys, mm -hmm. it's nice when you have a moniker. Right. It was like, yeah. the Space Cowboy, the Kamikaze Fireflies, Dan Holzman. Okay, <laughs> kind of, you know, I don't think it's yeah. as good of a, a sell as having kind of a unique... Ooh, let's go see Dan Holtzman. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds fun. Well, you know, of course, of course, people do because of my reputation precedes me. <laughs> and maybe nothing else is, is on at that time. So between those two factors, you know. But as the thing about those festivals, we all have kind of a, a role. Yeah. Like you have your bigger shows. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always think of you guys as a very big show because also you guys do big stunts. Yeah. Uh, the chair balance, the, the weather balloons. Is that intentional, the, the bigness of what you do? Yeah, I, I like to do things. I like my favorite routine is one that, like I'd say, there's three big things for me. It's easy to learn, it it plays big, and it packs small. I love all those right, right, things. Right. Yeah. I, kinda, I mean, the, the chairs, I like that one because there's some guts involved because you are up quite high. Oh, for sure. But I, I would think it's more of a perceived danger than a real danger. No, I would say it's no. a real danger. Um, <laughs> I mean, how many? So you're up on about uh, five or six chairs, right? How high are you up off the ground? It's five chairs, and I'm probably only like my top of my head might be maybe 15 feet in the air, 12, 15 feet. Uh, so it's not too bad, but but it is also like if something goes wrong and I start to fall, oh. it will probably go under out from underneath me in an awkward way, and then there will be a pile of chairs for me to fall into. I don't like that routine either because I'm afraid Rob's going to fall on me. Right. Right. Always thinking about yourself, Casey. That's very, uh, very noble of you. But <laughs> So, no. Right. No, it, it, it's one of those ones that for some reason always has a great deal of variance to it. I think people who do, maybe Rollabola would be a little safer. I'm not sure. But with the chairs, they there's always a little, like, because the, the surface that I put them on varies. Yeah. Even in theaters, I all end up with a sprung floor or maybe there's just a loose floorboard or something and it the whole thing will start to get a lean to it or a wobble to it yeah it's terrible doing out in the street the streets are never even yeah, yeah the one that scares me is the german wheel where you're throwing darts at casey like she has a balloon between her legs i believe and under her arms yeah i have three balloons tucked uh, in between my arms and then one in between my legs and rob uh, i i 
very smartly wear safety glasses. Yes, that's great. That's <laughs> my one little... Other parts of you are still exposed. Yeah, that's my one little nod to safety is you know, sunglasses. The, the funniest thing with that, though, is the most dangerous thing that ever happened with that was a balloon didn't pop, and instead it bounced the dart back into the audience. And luckily it landed safely, but I was like, oh, oh wow, man. I never even considered the fact that... Let's the... tuck this back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, what you're doing is you have Casey on a German wheel. She's rolling back and forth. Now, I personally think a blowgun would be safer because you got more oh, yeah, like that's force. A lot safer. Well, I just I mean just accuracy wise and just the fact that it would always pop the balloon wise. Sure. So that's my recommendation is get rid of the very safe dart. And then <laughs> the, the very the safer blow dart. So, <laughs> no, remember it. safety third. That's that's my <laughs> motto. How long before after you met when you because you were doing your solo oh. and you were still with this other group at that time, Casey? Yes. Yes, so how long after you met was it like okay this is now an act man was it like almost like two years oh. yeah because yeah. what we did was we we moved to los angeles and we were doing a, a couple of different things i was writing on a television show in case he was performing around town and but then we were like why not at least exploit some of these talents that we've developed over these years and honestly we thought we would do the the kamikaze fireflies more as a, a side to all of our Los Angeles work, but it just sort of took off. It just got booked so much, and we were having so much fun developing it that we, we doubled down and focused on that. Yeah, yeah. It took us all over the world together as a couple. We got to travel and see places, and it's just a very exciting, um, adventurous lifestyle that we get to, do to, get to do together. My favorite thing that you did in Los Angeles, Casey, was your chocolate tour. I thought yeah, that was a, yeah. a brilliant little idea of entrepreneurship where you... Thank you. What, you got a group of chocolate stores together or candy stores? I was walking around Beverly Hills one day and I noticed there was a surplus of chocolate stores. And I had I'd seen other chocolate tours around the country. There was one in Chicago that I was a big fan of. And I looked online and nobody was doing a tour of any sort of this nature. And so I just started it up. You know, I, I talked to all the stores. Uh, I went around and told them what I was going to do. And then my big start off for it where I actually started to get customers was to run a group on. I kind of like create a mini tour with variety performers around town with like Jack Dagger and Jennifer Lynn and um, who else was Jack Calvin was on it. I got a bunch of variety performers to do like a mock tour with me. And then uh, I ran a group on, I created this like a video for it, showed them it. And I, I got tons of customers right away, like thousands and thousands of people signed up for this. And I started running chocolate tours on the side and it was great. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea. The only thing that made it kind of stop was that we were booked so much on the road for the Kamikaze Fireflies that I kind of I kind of couldn't keep up with, with the tours. Like, I, I just eventually had to let it go. And, uh, I mean, I wish if I was spending more time in L.A., I would definitely start it up again. But for right now, we're just too busy with the show. Well, you kind of have to go where the universe gives you success and kind of pushes you. Right. And now, if yeah. we talk about show business success, it seems nowadays that part of that success is wrapped up in America's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice segue. Nice segue. Thank you. I, I am a professional podcaster. So I think those big IGA dollars for. Thank you very much. So, no, I, I can put on my more professional podcaster voice too. But then the tragedy struck. America's Got Talent. Now, we had a kind of a journey together on that show because I was instrumental in sort of talking you into doing the show you were very hesitant at first yeah you were the one who talked us into it yeah you uh you put us in touch with joe gunches who was working with agt to help make sure that talent was uh treated correctly on that show but we were still hesitant and he had reached out to us and we were sort of like 
dragging our heels and just sort of because I had a bit of a history with that show. I was the warm up comic for the entire first season of that show. I was there every single taping, every single show. <laughs> I contributed weird things to the show that continue to this day. Like uh, it was my idea. This is going to sound like I'm making this up, but it was my idea for the people to make the X with their arm. Like when the audience is saying, no, you need to get rid of this guy. I was the warm up comic. Huh? I, I didn't know that. That's very interesting that you were the warm up comic for that first. So that was the first year that that was the year the passing zone were on for the first time. That's right. And this was the American version was the very first version. Like they had come up with the show. Of course, it's a Simon Cowell show, but he never got it sold in England. So they started it here. And uh, yeah, so little things like making the X with the arm, they still hadn't figured out what the audience was going to do. So there was all this like it was kind of developing as we as we shot it. And yeah, the passing zone first year out, they were there right through to the finals like they did great. So, yeah, it was kind of fun for me too. like I saw a bunch of variety performers that I knew made some new friends. I think Ivan Passell came through that year, a few other guys. But uh, yeah, John and Owen were there right through to the end. So you kind of saw that at first there was a definitely an anti-juggling. Who was it? David Hasselhoff. Yeah, Hasselhoff. He hated Ivan Passell. He really went off on the yeah. poor guy. Well, he seemed to have a, like a juggling bias. Like, okay, right off the yeah, bat, absolutely. I don't like yeah. juggling. Yeah, and I thought Ivan did a really good job of defending himself and saying, you don't get what I'm doing. And I think if there's a flaw to AGT, it would be basically that's one of the big flaws for me is I wish they had people that had a wider variety of... Um, uh, experience in entertainment so that you had someone like, say you had Penn Jillette out there on that sure. panel, I would feel like I could do something like the foot sandwich and Penn Jillette could see the worth of it. But you do it for Heidi Klum and she may not see the worth of it. Yeah, so... The thing I always thought was sort of my big pet peeve is they don't seem to know much about what they're watching sometimes. No, not at like all. They'll watch an act like, let's say, the the Russian bar, which is the the, right. the bar between two performers with a usually a light woman doing mm -hmm. uh, gymnastics or flips. Right. They'll go, oh, my God, we've never seen that before. How creative <laughs> for you guys. It's like, well, I mean, they're great and everything, but they, they don't get credit for making right. up these. Like the one also, the, the back bend with the contortion who shoots the, the balloon. Yeah. Right. How did you come up with that? Yeah, the first person who thought of that, hey, good for you. But the fifth or tenth or twentieth person, you have to go, okay, you, you can do the trick, but... We can't give you credit for mm -hmm. coming up with it. And they seem to be like, oh, my God, you're doing yeah. the cascade. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that has some, some knowledge backstage would help. For us to go on that show, I really felt like it was talking to you. It really was the full persuasion. Dan Holtzman is not just a I... professional <laughs> podcaster. He's also a... I can be very persuasive. Very you are, but I thought you really you you had a few great points that I think are worth mentioning here if you haven't mentioned them in a previous podcast. And I think one of them is, uh, yes, this show has flaws. But if yeah. you're waiting for the perfect television show, well, you're going to wait the rest of your life. There's not the perfect TV show for you, so you got to play the game that's available to you. Well, they call it show business, not show fun. Right. Right. And the idea is like, oh. You have to wait 10 hours and they don't give you lunch and you may look bad. You may end up not doing well. Right. Well, if you ever watch, I'm a big UFC fan, you know, the ultimate fighting. Uh-huh. And if they have a day where they don't do well, they usually end up getting knocked out or choked out. <laughs> right. So it's the risk. It's the risk factor that kind of something you have to embrace to some degree. Right. And America's Got Talent, unfortunately, like back in our day, like if you're talking about Carson – 
<clears throat> the idea was you got on to do your routine. You got six minutes, seven minutes, and they wanted you to look as good as possible and do as well Absolutely. as you could. Yeah. Because that's what they were selling. Uh-huh. The thing about America's talent is they're selling entertainment. They don't care if it's entertaining good or entertaining bad. Right. They don't right. care if, if you're happy or you're sad. They want those extremes. They want those big swings mm-hmm. of emotion. So if you, if you don't give them good and you give them bad or they can manipulate bad, they might go that way. Yeah. Like, right. like the last podcast I had uh, Mark Hayward on, who was uh-huh. uh, on America's Got Talent and had kind of a mixed uh, experience. And he said, well, I had some mistakes, and that's all they showed was the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And my feeling is you can't give them bad stuff. Right. So you have to sort of accept the possibility that you can do bad. And if you give them something, like a, another friend I had fell off the front of the stage. Whoa, whoa. Like, like yeah. he, was, he was doing a routine where he was masked, where he was, and his vision was limited. Mm-hmm. He actually walked off the front of the stage. Luckily, he wasn't hurt. He was able to get back on stage. But it was, you know, an embarrassing moment. And then he was yeah. backstage, and the producers wanted to talk to him and wanted to exploit that moment. Right. Can you do that again? Well, they, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah. And what, right. what do you think people are going to say about that? And he didn't want any part of that. And he felt somehow that that was wrong of them. And I'm right. like, if I'm the producer of the show and you fall off the front of the stage. <laughs> yeah. My job isn't to be a saint at that moment. My, my, my job is to exploit that moment. Right. So I plan to audition next year. I, oh, I'm good. Gonna give it, yeah, I'm going to give it a try. So That's great. I can't wait to see how it goes for you. But I think like anything else, you have to observe it and say, okay, what would I be comfortable doing? Mm-hmm. How would I want to present myself? What would my, my arc be? What would my backstory be? What am I trying to accomplish? You have to go in there with a, a purpose you're trying to serve for yourself. Right, right. So, and you guys, you you got a good video out of it because your first spot, you got to use the host, Nick Cannon. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, for us, it ended up being, like, you were absolutely correct that it ended up being a great experience. And I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad you talked us into doing it. Also, like, if somebody is listening to this podcast and considering going on this show, I think one of the things they could take away from it is it all kind of tapes before it ever airs. So, you go on, you'll do your first set. If it goes well and they say, okay, great, what would you do in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds? You better have good ideas. And it can't be the same thing. You better have something else to pitch them because if indeed you move forward, they want to make sure it's worth their time to invest in you. So they're not going to give you that precious airtime if you haven't pitched them some stuff they're interested in seeing. So luckily, we, we you sign two contracts. So you sign one contract initially when you do the first appearance, and then you sign a, a lengthier contract following that. And I found that contract. Everybody's afraid of the con- Oh, yeah, that there's contract. nothing wrong with the contract. We, we combed over it to make sure that they didn't have any, like, rights over yeah. our show. They absolutely have no rights over your show. They can't, like, control you or have rights over your material. Uh, I think they might have early on, but performers quickly started to, like, you know, bulk at the idea of this. So that, it's, it's just a regular, straightforward contract. Yeah, they have rights over what they what you have on the show. Like, whatever you do on right, the show, yes. they right. own. Yeah. Right. But so anyway, so you, yeah, you pitch good second, third and fourth uh, round bits and you sign the contract and that's how you get that airtime. Like we got five solid minutes of national airtime and went great. It's forever going to be on our website, I'm sure. And it was totally worth it. And then we, we went down in the second round and they didn't even air the footage. So it sort of worked out well for us and that you never saw us get kicked off America's Got Talent. We just sort of disappeared. <laughs> well, what was interesting was because we had talked about because you and I, you know, the three of us were sort of 
brainstorming about what you should do and things like that. Right. And the decision was made to make the foot sandwich. Yeah. Because the success that that routine has had pretty much universally, including yeah. on TV, it kind of thought, well, that seems like the next move. Like, unless you, know, unless you want to pigeon yourself as a pigeonhole yourself as purely jugglers, the idea was to sort of break it out into more of a variety mode. Exactly. So it does right. show you that that's something that could have a lot of merit based on the fact that it's had years of success can be looked at by a panel of four people and go, oh, that is not good. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden that's become not good. In the last 30 seconds, all of a sudden now it has no worth, which is which is ridiculous, but it can happen. It can happen, right, exactly. This routine that, like, there's not a routine I'm better known for. Like, I'll, I'll have it happen around the world. People go, oh, you're the sandwich guy. Like yeah. it's a, it's that sort of routine. I've literally been flown around the world to do it on various television shows. I've done it on the tonight show, all this stuff. And yeah, to suddenly have this routine that is like that well known, that well respected, that intriguing. It's also good on television. It plays really funny and to have it not just be kind of not liked, but they loathed it. It was, <laughs> they, it, it was probably me. <laughs> no, I, but you had a good, you had a good line to remember because I think Heidi didn't want to eat the sandwich. Right. No, she was, yeah, she was totally lame about it. <laughs> Did one of you say something about supermodels don't eat or something like that? Or? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it, it, it just quit at the time. Yeah. yeah, it just wasn't very, she was having none of it. She just sat there looking angry. The judges all looked angry. Yeah, they couldn't have been more negative. Well, they want, they definitely wanted you, which is a good, a good lesson, which is basically, I guess they want you just to do the same thing, basically, in just a bigger... Yeah, they wanted us to juggle again. Yeah. But my opinion was, I, I think part of the reason they didn't air the footage was, I think all the judges came off a little bit too mean. Like, in, in my opinion, I mean, I was there actually getting the criticism, so of course it was mean. But I think they probably came off a little bit like jerks. Because we just kind of sat, sat there and took it. We were like, okay, I mean, you didn't like it. Well, <laughs> Yeah, we you probably didn't give them enough enough emotion, too. You didn't break down. And... Yeah, yeah, we didn't break down. I, I felt like that was part of it. I think, as you're, you were mentioning, your friend had happened. Like, they swarmed us. As soon oh, as we walked terrible. off stage, the producers, oh. the cameras and everything. And you could you just had this feeling that they were, like, they were kind of going, just shed one tear. Come on, man. Or be angry. If you were, like, really super angry. Yeah, get angry fight back with the judges, cry a little bit, storm <laughs> off, do something. And instead we were like, hey, thanks very much for having us. We had a great time. And they're like, yeah. Get these out. <laughs> this doesn't work. Yeah. Boo. Where are the tears? Where are the tears? But hey, I mean, I still think you guys should try it again. Look at the passing zone. They came back. Yeah, they did great. They did great. I think it's time. You know what, you know what I said was it completes the arc. You need to go on and say, yeah, they told us they didn't like what we did, but we've We've taken their words to heart, and now we're back to win. We're mm -hmm. in it to win it. So yeah, yeah. Well, she'll be competing against me, so you know, because <laughs> I'm in it to win it too, or or just to try, I guess. So oh, I'm excited you're going to do it, Dan. That's yeah. great. Well, you know, I mean, my thing is I do some coaching. I've I've worked with you guys a little bit. I work with other uh -huh. acts, and it's good for me, like too, because they, this experience with you guys, because I sometimes think I know. Like I mm -hmm. remember, uh, oh, Eric Bus. He has a routine called the Spring Snake Symphony. Uh-huh. And I've always loved that routine. It's with these spring snakes. You know, the snakes are in the cans. Uh-huh. That, that jump out of the peanut can and they, they scare you. Yeah. And he put a routine together where he has, uh, I think, the uh, Blue Danube Waltz. And he's got hundreds of these things lined up. It's this huge contraption. And they shoot them off in time to the music. But unlike a juggling routine, it's kind of like surefire. Like, you're not going to drop. 
Right. right. Like maybe the me- mechanism could, could jam up or something. But basically, I think you get to the point where it can kind of just be very surefire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought, man, that's a perfect America's Got Talent routine. Mm-hmm. It's quick. It's punchy. It's weird. It's visual. And I think this was after you guys did your spot. And when they didn't mm-hmm. like that, and they didn't like the foot sandwich, I'm like, okay, it's good to think I really don't know. Like, I can, I can have, no, really, I got my best idea. I can have my best knowledge based on what I've seen. Right. When you're giving people advice, at a certain point, you have to say, look, we, you know, the foot sandwich, I think it's going to do well. But to be honest, I don't know. Right. So, like, I think I have an idea to go in. Which of our routines should we do next next time? Well, I think we, we probably should have gotten something for high again, like the perch poles or the chair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just got right. gotten more danger, like giving them more danger. Like, oh, here, this is even higher up in the air than last time. Mm-hmm. Something more simple. They could, some, well, something simple that they could understand. Yeah. Oh, like, four torches, not three. Exactly. We really stepped it up. I think that's what they were looking for. So. Mm-hmm. Let's move off the AGT experience, but thanks for sort of shedding some light on your personal experience, because I think that helps people. And unfortunately, nowadays, if you look at the late night show landscape, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel's, the Jimmy Fallon's, the Seth Meyer's, none of them uh, that I see have any variety. No, and if they do, they use it in sort of a, they'll never just let you go out and do a routine. Like they have, I think James Corden has something where you can go Mm -hmm. on and do bar tricks, and that gets on a few variety performers, but... It doesn't feel like they're given, at least on AGT, you can say, I am a performer. Here is my act. This is what I do. Whereas on a lot of these other shows, Ellen does something with people. But you always have to pretend like, no, I, I'm i not a performer. I'm just a guy. You know, there, there are two other shows that we're interested in. And one of them is The Gong Show. I think you're allowed to be what you are there. Right. You have a very short amount of time to do it. Is that still on, The Gong Show? I think it uh, might be going in for a second season, yes. You know, one that Rob and I also looked into doing was The Amazing Race, because you can be yourself. You could be a two-person variety show. It gets you a lot of exposure and a lot of airtime. Have you tried that? Because I think that's a great idea. I don't know about The Gong Show. I think that's kind of a come-and-go kind of, even if you do well, you know, it's not really a a big enough splash. But The Amazing Race would be cool for you guys. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting show, and you can, you do. You just get a lot of airtime, and you talk about what you do. Have you auditioned or, or done anything like that? No, we haven't auditioned. I was just examining that, like, there's a, a pretty lengthy, they, you can see that their application process, they, they ask a lot of questions. You can tell they really want to get into who you are as people and explore. And in that sort of circumstance, I think, yeah, the unusualness of who we are and what we do only, you know, works in our favor. And you guys are now currently on your travels making comedy vlogs. I guess you call it a vlog, video logs. Yeah. That's a vlog. And I think that's a great idea to sort of show your personality. And that can only help when you try to book shows like The Amazing Race. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it would definitely help if we uh, pointed them in that direction. But I'm finding what's great about the video, the vlogs that we put out there, is that for people who follow us online, it, it kind of lets them see us more and kind of get to know us more as people because we just kind of just put it out there that this is what we're like and this is what we do and we went to some of these renaissance festivals that we had uh, been doing for years and everyone said they had watched them and they loved our videos and it's been working out really great we really like it let's give them a plug then how can people watch the rob and casey vlogs you can go to our facebook at facebook.com slash kamikaze fireflies or our instagram instagram.com slash kamikaze fireflies or on twitter cool because i enjoy those i think that's sort of the future i think the more on-camera work you can get, the more you can show that you can do something besides the variety skills nowadays. Right. Uh, kind of, I think, in the long run, 
is going to serve you well to become more of a comedy act, more of a, a couple that's known as sort of an acting couple, uh, the variety pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, has become a bit of a straitjacket. Right. For some acts. And you guys have so much potential. So let's talk about the future. We're kind of coming to the end of our, our time here on the Drop Everything podcast. So where, where's the future lie for Robin Casey? Yeah, I think what we're trying to push for with the, the videos is to open up that door a little bit towards something else on television. You know, for us, we love doing the show. We'll do the show as long as we can, wherever we can. You just want to find the best fit between what you love to do and finding the right audience for it. And so we're forever seeking that out there, just trying to find the best fit for us. But then also try to like crack open new doors. Not that I don't love being a variety performer, but I I do feel like if we can open the door to ourselves a little bit wider to be more than just that, to be creatives on other levels. That's what I'm hoping these, these videos do. And that's what I would hope happens next for us. Well, I like on your website that you're not afraid to be funny. Like you have on your thing, it says, if you don't like the show, you can punch us. Right. Like some exceptions apply, something like that. Right. Because I always think that, you know, a lot of acts now, they're afraid to put out that they're funny. I mean, they'll say it like, oh, you know, we're the funniest act working. But they don't put out content that sort of relies on their humor. Mm -hmm. Right. And I see that's the direction you guys are going is that we can be humorous and interesting without doing a variety skill. Right. right. And of course, you guys have a very interesting couple dynamic, and I hope you keep exploring that and to keep growing as theatrical performers. And uh, I wish you guys a lot of luck in the coming years, and I know our friendship will continue. And hopefully, uh, once again, we can find ourselves on an adventure together. That sounds great, some, yeah. We've had, had some great adventures. The night in Amsterdam comes to mind. Yeah, with, in Amsterdam. <laughs> with Niels Dunker, who was the wildest of all of us, wasn't he? Oh, <laughs> Niels, man, he tears that town up. He tears Wild that part. town up. Big shout out to Niels Dunker, <laughs> the king of Amsterdam. So, king and of, of course, Amsterdam. the royal couple of comedy, Rob and Casey. Thank you so much for being on the Drop Everything podcast, and thanks for being my friends. Thanks, guys. Our oh, pleasure, thanks, Dan. Dan. Thank you. Put a fork in it. That's episode number 53, Drop Everything with Casey Martin and Rob Williams, the Kamikaze Fireflies. Thank you guys and best of luck as you bring your antics to audiences around the world. Hey, let's thank our sponsors before we go, starting with the International Jugglers Association. Without the IJ, there'd be no Drop Everything podcast. Without Scott Seltzer sort of starting the whole ball rolling, there would be no Dan Holzman. Well, maybe that's going too far, but you get the idea. Thanks, IJ, for giving me this platform to talk with jugglers and have them share their knowledge with the masses. You can be found, of course, at ijaisjuggle.org. Enjoy their fine resources. Become part of their community now at juggle.org. Hey, it's almost time for the holidays, so what makes the perfect stocking stuffer? It has to be the Ring Dama or the Zing Dama. Get the original Ring Dama at ringdama.com. Get the souped-up LED version at zingtoys.com. It's called the Zing Dama. Get yours today. Thank you so much for listening till the very end, because now it's over. Drop everything, except when you're juggling.